Get ready to be inspired by the great things happening in rural education. The Rural Scoop will bring you new ideas and innovative solutions, will dive into education issues, and will highlight what's working in your rural communities. You will hear from a variety of educators, administrators, professionals, and others who will provide relevant and engaging content in each episode. And now, serving up the scoop, here's your host, Dr. Melissa Sadorf. Welcome back, Rural Scoop listeners, for our collaboration series of podcasts based on the book, Cultivating Rural Education, a people-focused approach for states. The Rural Scoop has teamed up with WestEd to look at rural education from multiple perspectives with a variety of authors who lent their expertise to the book, one of whom we'll be talking to today. I also have the pleasure of co-hosting the series with Julie Duffield of West Ed and the Regional Education Lab 15, which services the states of Arizona, California, Utah, and Nevada. Thank you so much, Julie, for co-hosting this series with me. And can you introduce yourselves to our listeners? Yes. Hi, everyone. I'm Julie Duffield. As Melissa said, I have the great pleasure of working with her for the uh, Region 15. And this is a part of our rural community of practice, which covers the four states of Arizona, California, Nevada, and Utah. Thank you so much. Our author today is Dr. Shanika Williams, a professor and chair of the Department of Educational Administration at Michigan State University. Her research has examined educational opportunity for African-American students across both rural and urban contexts. She has been widely published in peer-reviewed journals such as Educational Policy and the Peabody Journal of Education. And her work has been presented on CNN and NPR. She's participated in several women in educational leadership programs and has served her community as a former board president and member of a nonprofit in Athens, Georgia called Books for Keeps. She currently is a board member of Give, Build, Share, which is a nonprofit that benefits an elementary school in Ghana, West Africa. And Dr. Williams, I know this is only a fraction of what you've done, (laughs) and I'm looking forward to learning more about you and your work. So thank you for being with us today. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you both for having me. I look forward to this discussion today. Well, can you start us off by giving us a little bit of background about your rural experiences and how they influenced your participation in the book we're talking about? Oh, sure. Um, I grew up in rural Alabama, town called Jackson, that today has a population of roughly 6,000 people. Uh, When I was growing up, I remember this sign that said, welcome to Jackson. And I think at that time it was 20, we had 21,000 people in the town. And you can notice over over time how the population has decreased. And that is something we'll talk about a little bit later with the loss of jobs and, and some going away to college. Um, not having an opportunity to return, right? But I grew up in a small town. I remember when they paved the road in front of my parents' house. Um, Mm -hmm. My parents still live in that same red brick house. And that was the beginning of my interest and love for rural education. I am one of the students that I write about. And I know that if it had not been for my parents and the strong teachers that we had in the community, that I would not be where I am today. And so I have a passion for this work 
And I know that they are sharp rural learners, but we have to find them. We have to find ways to seek them out and not always ex- you know, expect them to seek us out. Just expanding on that, in the um, chapter that you wrote, uh, right, on strong rural learners, you focus a lot in the chapter about the opportunities and challenges of the rural learner, such as matriculating through K-12 and um, forging careers. Can you say a little bit more? Because it's hard to fit in a chapter, all that you know. So how did you focus that conversation, that chapter? You know, it was hard to focus that focus on strong rural learners in just one chapter because we have to recognize that the rural learner isn't a monolith, right? I think some of the literature would have you believe that the rural learner is probably white and living in Appalachia. But if you travel across the country, um, rural learners are quite diverse, right? From Um, a high African-American population in the Southeast to a high Native American and Latinx um, population in the Southwest. And so what is the rural learner? But what we do know, regardless of context and where the rural learner lives, we know that rural learners are graduating high school at a relatively high rate. But we also know that the college going rate for the rural learner is relatively low when compared to urban and suburban learners. So one of the things that interests me about this work at large is how do we get the rural learner, once they leave high school, what happens next, right? Because if the opportunities are not there for, for jobs, right, in job advancement, And if the opportunities are not there for college going, then what becomes of the rural learner? And if you would expand on that just a little bit, share about the profile of a rural student, including the research that you've been involved in or that you are aware of that suggests that the rural student population is increasing in diversity and the issue of considering rural students in schools as that homogenous group that you mentioned. Absolutely. So we're recognizing that with population shifts happening across the country, and I I think it would be even more interesting to see this in a post-COVID context, whenever Mm -hmm. we are post-COVID, we know that some families who could chose to move, and some of those families moved to more rural contexts, right, so that they were not so compacted in cities. So it would be interesting to see how um, the diversity of rural communities changed. But we are seeing more diversity um, in rural communities at large. And we noticed that white students are becoming what we would consider more isolated in, in their communities. So with that, we have to think about what are the educational opportunities afforded to students in certain populations, right? We understand that farming isn't what it used to be. And so when a lot of people think of the rural student, they think, well, this student might want to work in manufacturing, this student might want to work in farming. We have to understand that the rural community has shifted and it's no longer farming and manufacturing. So what can we offer from an educational standpoint, right, that offers educational opportunities to students in those places? And even if it is manufacturing, those jobs have become more automated, right? So how do we provide STEAM courses, as I call them, science, technology, math, arts courses, engineering, 
that gives students the tools to go and work in more advanced type positions. And that's true of farming too. Farming isn't um, as agrarian as it used to be. It also has become high tech. So for the rural learner in some really geographically isolated places, how do we develop a curriculum, right? To fit the times, but also to fit the diverse needs of those communities. And just building on that, um, can you share with our listeners about, you know, your commentary that you wrote, wrote about rurality and the diversity and um, basically some of the myths that have been out there? You wrote a, a commentary on the New York Times piece on rural schools saying it highlights um, only half the story and what was missing. So can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Absolutely. Um, writing that piece was one of the joys of, of working in the rural education sphere. Um, my co-author and I, uh, Mara Teigen, um, who's a very strong rural, rural ed scholar who's at Bates College, um, she and I were working on another piece. And so when I saw the New York Times article come out, I sent her an email and I said, we have to respond to this. We cannot let this go. And we decided to respond because there are many people who don't know or know very little about rural education. And I felt, and, and so did she, and I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I, I think I can say this. We felt that if individuals read that article and had no contact with rural education, from a rural learner to a rural family, they would believe that all that rural education has to offer are dilapidated schools and students who can't rise beyond some of the conditions, right? And so we thought it was important to tell the other side of the story and talk about the graduation rates, but also talk about the community cohesiveness. That is a part that people tend to forget that rural communities have a sense of place, and, and a sense of cohesiveness that pull them through when nothing else will, right? And so communities pull together and make sure that schools have what they need to have and provide opportunities for students. And we really wanted to highlight that because we felt that a lot of rural pieces, including the New York Times piece, while I thought it was it was very well written, I thought the lens was very deficit, right? Yes. And that we cannot continue to talk about rural from a deficit lens and not highlight what the communities bring to the table. I like to view some of my rural work through the lens of community cultural wealth. What is it that the people bring? I think oftentimes some scholars go into rural communities thinking that the community has nothing to bring when in actuality the community comes with a lot of wealth. That is so well said. I really like that phrase, community culture wealth. Shanika, what was the response to the article? Did you get feedback from people that had read it? We did. Actually, we heard from more media outlets who wanted to reprint. So it's been reprinted, I, I think, in two or three different media outlets. And we were really excited about that. But to be completely honest with you, and, and a piece that I have not yet written, but Mar and I both want to, we were really trying to get to policymakers, to tell you the truth. Because what we see uh, being detrimental to the strong rural learner, if you will, 
does not lie at the feet of local policymakers or even state level policymakers. Rural education has been neglected from a federal policy standpoint. Um, lots of programs from the Every Student Succeeds Act back to No Child Left Behind and before that, um, you, you know, we'll take for, exa for example, the highly qualified teacher um, provision that was in No Child Left Behind. Well, that ran counter to what happens in rural districts when you have a hard time attracting teachers to certain areas. So what we wanted to do, and I hope to still do, and maybe someone is listening to this, is reach some federal and or state policymakers to think about how are policies adopted? How are they developed? And how might the implementation of those policies matter in a rural context? I think too often that policy has been developed from a very urban centric lens and therefore there is no space um, for, rural, for rural education. And that is what we really wanted to do with the piece. So, so responding to the New York Times article really was twofold. It was one, to talk about the strength of rural communities, but two, to also highlight how rural education got to this place. Um, can you share a little bit more about the successful practices focused on community cohesiveness, alternatives to the brain drain, such as expanded career technical education that operate in tandem with initiatives to develop jobs in the community or collaboration with existing industry? Yes, yeah, so I think one thing that might um, lessen the brain drain, if you will, is, is for schools in, in rural districts to expand the career and technical education options. And, and that I see, it dovetails with some of the STEAM options that schools might be able to offer. Um, job training programs, right, that allow students to get an education, maybe a technical degree beyond high school, but maybe in high school, begin to have some apprenticeship work. And you might say, well, if there are very few jobs there, what could the apprenticeship be? Now we have the benefit of technology and, and perhaps with the infrastructure bill, more broadband technology. I think we have to, we want work within the community because that lends to the vitality and sustainability of rural communities. But we also, for, for people to have a livelihood, right, might want to think about ways that technology can enhance the skill sets of students in rural communities, right? So some of the work, while I would love for the work to be in the rural community, one might still be able to reside there, but work remotely, you mm -hmm. know, and, and learn skills from a remote place. But to be honest, the economic benefit could still come to the rural community because the individual is still there. So maybe think about expanding CTE, but if it can't happen locally, now we should think about how might broadband technology help expand CTE offerings beyond the local community, but the benefit is in return to the local community, if that makes sense. Absolutely does. That community partnership is a powerful thing. Absolutely. And I think one thing we've learned in these past 20 months, we know that technology matters. And I'm not saying we want to over rely on it, 
but there are some benefits to it. We've been able to do things with technology that we didn't think we could do pre-COVID. And I think particularly in rural areas, and as I say, with the infrastructure and expanding broadband access, I think this is a prime opportunity to think outside the box for rural communities and rural schools when you think about the difficulty in attracting teachers who might teach calculus and things of that nature. We've been doing distance learning in rural education for some time, but I think the technology systems are even more enhanced now that could help um, build upon what we've already begun. Yeah, definitely this um, environment we're living in about in COVID times about learning how to use technology from a distance in different models is really an opportunity, as you said, to, you know, build in access. Um, I thought it was really interesting when you're talking about STEAM that you mentioned the study by Tate that showed in the GIS location matters in terms of aspirations and access. So could you talk a little bit more about how, what that study is illustrating and how it could be applied to strengthening um, STEM courses? Yes, absolutely. So GIS is, is just one way that, that Tate views this, but there's this framework called geography of opportunity, right? And students having opportunities based on their location. So how might some of the tools that rural students have benefit where they are locally? And so one of the studies that I referenced is a biotechnological advancement that happened in Detroit, right? Granted, Detroit's an urban area, might have more access to some resources, but I thought that that whole idea might be cross-applied to urban, to, to some rural areas. And, and why would I think that? Why would I think that something that's worked in an urban area where there's a high population and access to resources might be cross-applied to a rural area? Well, the one thing the two have in common to some degree is poverty mm-hmm. and lack of resources. But they both have strong students who have will. And I think if we think about some of the advancements that have been successful in urban areas, now with technology and thinking about what rural communities need, some of those advancements, as I mentioned earlier, from some of the manufacturing, some of the farming, um, and other types of industry, um, that might also be successful in rural areas. I think oftentimes, We don't try these things in rural areas because we don't think the will is there. Mm -hmm. I don't think we think the population wants it or better yet warrants it, but I don't know that we've tried to know. And I don't think we will know until we try. You highlighted in the the chapter how community-based opportunities like 4-H really do offer some uh, of those SEL approaches and supports uh, for students in rural communities that have mental health needs. And there are, as anyone can tell you that lives in a rural community, limited access oftentimes to those kinds of mental health care supports. Can you talk more about how those community-based opportunities uh, support these rural students. And you had mentioned one in the chapter called the Colorado Rural Education Collaborative. And I'm sure that there's others that you can highlight for us as well. 
Yes. And, and I'll be honest, I don't know the, I don't know these collaboratives or as well personally, right? I only know them from the literature, but they do tend to provide um, a bright spot, if you will, in terms of the social emotional health of, of students in rural areas. Because when we think about the capacity of some of the schools, not all of the schools have counselors. And I'm mm-hmm. talking um, mm-hmm. You know, not just a basic school counselor, but a counselor that might be able to work and work with a student on well-being. Some of the schools might not be equipped um, with social workers, but a lot of the rural schools do have 4-H programs or they do have these collaboratives from community members. Right. Again, bringing the community into the school. And that is a strength that builds upon these resources and make sure their grants and programs for act, for students to be able to access. And so I, I think that there might be some opportunities now, again, on the federal level for some of the rural schools and districts. And it might be a multi-district approach, right? Because I know we're dealing with numbers. And so it might be two or three districts coming together and applying for federal or state money to have some of these SEL type programs or some of these collaboratives to help students with their social emotional learning needs or better yet, just building on essential skills, right? From how to have, from banking, um, from some of the things that it takes to have a sustainable life. And not to say that the school curriculum doesn't have that, right? But I think that you can't have enough of that. Just building on the importance of building these partnerships and building on asset-based work, can you tell me uh, and share a little bit about um, the university-based programs that are reaching out and helping this sort of pathway for student success? Yes. So the one that I know the most about um, is the Clemson Emerging Scholars Program. I do think that the University of Georgia is beginning to do some things. Um, They have a new rural initiative, to be honest. I don't know a lot about it. I know a couple of uh, former colleagues who work with it. But I think in some of the rural areas, particularly where land-grant universities exist, that is a ripe opportunity for university-based programs to work in these communities, right? Because we have to think about what is the mission of a land-grant institution? It is to serve the community and the larger state. And so for instance, I know that the Clemson program um, has a tight network or or tight collaboration with the I-95 corridor, which um, historically has been majority black, majority Mm -hmm. high poverty, and introducing those students to things about campus and preparing for college. That is just one example. I do know that in my work at Michigan State, I'm interested in developing some initiatives with the Upper Peninsula, which is um, majority white and highly Native American, but at this time, the university doesn't have a robust partnership. And how are we living out our land grant mission if we're not doing some of this work? You mentioned it a little bit previously, but can you speak to some of the challenges that you've highlighted in the chapter around things like limited course offerings, lack of broadband, uh, (laughs) some of those schools that are under-resourced? And then there are really... Uh, some issues around what students think they can achieve with those aspirations and dreams, as well as competition for scholarships. Can you talk more about that? 
Yes, I, I want to talk about this in two camps, because I think like competing for scholarships and home environment is one piece. But I also think course offerings and, you know, teacher quality, that's another. I think that, again, there's a state imperative and a federal imperative to make sure that the schools have what suburban and urban schools have. Agree. We cannot assume that a rural school doesn't deserve a college prep curriculum. That is that is not what we would consider equitable, not in 2021, right? But what do we know from home environments? We know that in a lot of research tells us that the co- cohesiveness of rural communities also makes it very difficult for some of the students who grow up in these areas to leave. Mm-hmm. Because the community is so tight, um, we, we find from some of the qualitative data, I write about this in, in one of my chapters that I think is published, I think the handbook is out. There's a handbook of rural education that should be out. Um, and in it, I interviewed some students um, who went to school in the Mississippi Delta. And for some of them, it was very hard to leave. For some, it was easy to stay. And so the cohesiveness sometimes puts the student in a struggle of leaving behind the rest of the family, right? So when I say home environment, it doesn't mean that the home environment is dysfunctional. It means that it's so cohesive and close. The one or two who might want to leave struggle with leaving because of what is being left behind. And so I've, you know, I've had conversations with um, study participants. And I've said, you know, there's more than one way to leave. You can leave and return physically, or you can leave and get access to resources and still return, maybe not physically, but your presence and what you're able to give and offer can still return to that place. So when I talk about some of the barriers or some of the challenges, I would argue that from a school perspective, we really have to push at the state and federal policy level. I think state funding formulas for education have totally disregarded rural districts. We have to continue. And when I say we, I'm meaning those of us in the scholarly community, but in the actual communities, rural communities, we have to push on what we know, right? To be fact and to help students um, thrive. Uh, we have to push state and federal policymakers on those issues to be able to provide students with an equitable opportunity for learning. But in terms of competition for scholarships, I um, had a one-off conversation with an admissions officer. And most admissions offices at some universities, not all, they're not scanning for the student in the small rural town. In fact, one admissions officer said to me, we don't recruit, we select. Mm. And by selecting, you are not looking for the, the, the smart young man or woman who is in a town of 3,000. And how might that young person have the capital and the know-how to get to you? Because oftentimes those schools um, might not have a guidance counselor. They might, they might not. And if there is a family that has not gone to college before, how might that child know how to access? So I would say, I would put the onus on community colleges and four-year institutions 
for expanding the recruitment network to include rural communities, because to date, it's not there in the same way. But again, that also ties to course offerings. We need college prep and other NCTE offerings so that students have the resume, if you will, and if they want to go to college, because I'm not saying a four-year degree is everything, and that is, I'm not saying it is for everybody. But for those who want it, we have to make sure they have had the resources and the education to get them there. And the same for those who want to go into industry right after high school. We have to make sure from CTE programs and the like that they've had the opportunities to land them well. In sharing some of the um, non-traditional innovative approaches that you've seen as people look at, you know, keeping students engaged in their learning, um, like place-based education, youth leadership, remote learning and dual enrollment. You mentioned a lot of those. Can you talk a little bit more about the place-based education approach? I was really interested to know that one study showed that it actually increased test scores, even though it's probably a very project-based learning and there's lots of other things and and ways of learning that students are demonstrating. Well, place-based learning allows students to feel like they can relate to what it is they're learning and they have something to contribute, right? If you teach a student from the basis of what they already know and build projects from that, whether it's a, whether you're teaching math, whether you're teaching science, whether you're teaching social studies, there is an interest there that students can relate to and build upon. Um, I would say that I I am not shocked that the data show that students who participate in place-based learning tend to do better because it's of interest to them. Mm -hmm. Sometimes students can't relate. And I would say this for the rural student. And I think it's less now because technology has made the world so small, right? Um, But I would say that learning about something that seems so foreign, and I use that word loosely, that seems so foreign to you um, can cause one to lose interest. But learning more and deeper about something that you already know or you've already seen or that you can touch, it builds interest. And so I am not shocked at all that the data would say the students have all of these gains. That is something that I think, again, when we think about the community cultural wealth and what is it that rural places bring, that is absolutely something we could build on. I think what rural students need, it's already there. When media and when some research has has portrayed rural from a deficit lens, you tend to begin to believe that it is not there. And that also goes back to the response to the New York Times article. Yes. You you don't have to be in a large urban area to be well-educated, right? I I don't buy that, but I buy that you have to use the resources that are there and build upon those. Yeah, thank you. I I grew up in a very rural community, and I remember doing my first project, and it was on cultivating pearl shell which was where my community spent a lot of its assets. And then I suddenly got interested in being a marine biology, which I'd never thought of. So just starting from where you are in your identity and building on that, it has a sense of real, real learning. So I appreciate you sharing that. Absolutely. And I just want to elaborate a little bit. You know, when I introduced myself, I want to say 
that and and this is anecdotal, but I've I've seen it, and I believe that if I were to conduct a study, it would show itself. My first three teachers were black women, and they tended they were also family friends. That's another small community um, attribute. And I had a school, I was in a school, I remember, you know, the old risograph machines where the ink was purple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But when I look back on it, I was educated, particularly in elementary schools, uh, in elementary school, grades K through six, in a school that had very little to offer in terms of resources. But I had teachers that made me believe we had everything. And it wasn't until I was in college that I realized I probably had a subpar education, right? In some ways, right? In in terms of access to some resources. But I had teachers who pushed and gave everything they had with very little. And so that's why I say, if you have good teachers and you have community resources, you have what you need, even in this day and time. You have to might have to work a little bit harder and you know to get access to larger networks, but you have the basis right there. And I just want to elaborate a little because I think you um, point at a really important thing about having people who look like you teach you. And so we had one of these conversations recently in our group about teacher recruitment and retention and increasing the diversity in rule settings of teachers. But then this sort of tension about how do we locate teachers? What can we do to um, increase diversity? And, you know, as you say, teacher shortages have made it really difficult to often balance all of that. What are your thoughts of that? I I think there is something there. I I think, um, and and I'll speak specifically about African-American teachers Mm -hmm. for African-American students. And when we say, well, there's a shortage of teachers, my first question would be, well, where are you going to look for them? Um, Historically, Black colleges and universities are still producing the highest numbers of Black teachers in this country. So if you're looking for a Black teacher, you probably don't want to go to the state institution because they are probably not there. Mm -hmm. So, you, you know, we have Hispanic serving institutions that are you know, um, producing the next generation of Hispanic teachers. So where are we going to look for teachers, right? Particularly teachers of color to fill some of these voids. Um, Can a student learn with a teacher of another race? Absolutely so. One of my, or two of my favorite teachers were white women. I remember I cried when one of them left and I'm still in touch with one of them via Facebook. First, a teacher needs to to care, right? I would I would say that let's get a teacher who cares first. Um, I think having a same race teacher is very important. But if you can't find that, if the teacher cares and believes in the student, then you can still get a win. But I will say, um, for black teachers in general. Ever since schools desegregated um, and some teachers lost their positions, we have not returned to that number of Black teachers. And that, um, I think people become ahistorical when they start talking about a shortage of teachers and particularly Black teachers. Um, That is one of the downsides of schools desegregating because imagine for that generation of students 
who had had Black teachers, Black principals, and all of a sudden you don't have those identity markers anymore, right? And so we fast forward that to today, we're still feeling that. Um, And that is one of the downsides of desegregation, particularly when it comes to Black students. We still have not rebounded from the loss of Black teachers and Black school leaders. I want to be hopeful and say that we will, but I don't know that we will. I'm going to shift a little bit to um, some of the thoughts that you might have. You talked briefly about policymakers and influencers really needing to step up to the plate in terms of rural education. Can you share some of your favorite examples uh, about how the state departments of education can play a role? I, I would say probably one of the first things I would say is let's look at how schools are funded. I think that has been a huge issue. There have been numbers of lawsuits filed and and some of them unsuccessfully or many of them unsuccessfully. And I I don't wanna say that money matters, but it does because it depends on how you spend it, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Spend it on computers that are locked in closets for the whole year, then no, it does not, right? (laughs) If you spend it on on teachers and resources for student growth and development, then yes, it does. And so I would first say um, for states, I'd really consider where we are with funding formulas because they have had adverse effects on on rural ed. Um, From a federal level, I would suggest um, we take a huge look again, and I know that broadband access is on the table and some people would say, oh, that doesn't make such of a difference. Well, COVID showed us that it did. I think I did an interview with the Guardian at the beginning of COVID where a mother was going to sit outside of McDonald's so they could get um, access, right? Not enough towers in rural areas. I can say that anecdotally from when I go to visit my parents. The strength is just not there. The the width, the bandwidth literally just isn't there. So I would say that. I would also say um, paths to becoming a teacher. I know a lot of districts have grow your own programs, um, maybe in rural communities, extending those. And, And to leave policy for just a minute, I don't know that universities are doing all that they should or could do um, for communities, not just rural communities, urban communities, suburban communities. I think there's a lot of brain trust in in universities. And I don't know, um, particularly at some of the land-grant institutions, if if the relationships and the collaborations are being built in ways that they should be. As we um, just wrap up, I could talk to you forever. I have to say that. Um, can you share um, something that you, you're doing now, a research that's coming up that you're excited to put out there and um, talk a little bit more about and how it relates to our discussion here, talking to policymakers, strengthening you know, the partnerships with land-grant universities. We talked about so many things, so... Oh, thank you um, for asking that question. I, as I mentioned, my co-author and I on the response to the the New York Times piece, Martikin and I are working on a piece um, and and it'll basically speak to a a, a policy scholarly audience about what is the relationship between rural education and federal education policy? In fact, I'll be working on that when I end this podcast today because we're nearing a deadline. 
Um, that is one thing I'm working on. Um, another piece um, that I'm working on or considering um, is thinking about, I know that Russell Sage and the Urban Institute introduced some data uh, that they have for rural areas. And I don't know what the question will be, but some colleagues and I are looking at teasing out that data and trying to find some ways that um, we could do some research that might be helpful. Um, I'm also working with a group um, with a foundation, I won't name the foundation, but we're trying to determine what a rural research agenda might look like. And for some of the listeners, you might say, well, why research? Because we know what we know, but I don't know if we know what we don't know, right? And so there are some deeper questions that we need to ask. And the way that we wrote the proposal, we wrote it to encourage and involve community members. Because I think as a scholar, we have to remember, you can't always go into these things knowing everything. You have to allow the communities to speak and have the voice. And there's so much knowledge there that has been overlooked because it doesn't look like it should look from a scholarly perspective. So I would say that's the proudest work um, that might come to fore within the next year. You know, being in an administrative position now, uh, it takes some time away from the research, but the research is very near and dear to me. Um, I have some thoughts about work I want to do here in the Midwest because all of my work has been in the South so far. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't know how rural the Midwest was until I moved here. And so now I have some questions I want to ask and probe, but I'm just trying to figure out if those are appropriate, if I'm seeing what I think I'm seeing. All right. Well, I just would like to say thank you so much for spending part of your day with us. I know that it's enlightening for both Julie and I, and I know it'll be enlightening for our listeners too. We just really appreciate all of your expertise and look forward to seeing what's next. And yes, we would love to have you back. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I would just say to the audience and, and whoever's listening, I love these opportunities because I think sometimes when you live in the ivory tower, I like to do work that matters beyond the scholarly community. I never want to lose touch with the lay person who's trying to make a decision about a school um, and, and who's trying to figure out what could we do to improve our community. So this has been a pleasure to have this conversation because I, I never want my work to not reach the lay public. Well, thank you so much for all that you. you do. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All the best. Thank you so much for listening to The Rural Scoop. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe, or even leave us a comment. You can check out previous episodes of The Scoop wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Sadorf so you never miss a new release. See you next time for more great discussions about rural education. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.